Can I on, Dave? All right. Well, let me open our time together in the Word uh, with prayer to our God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do bless your holy name, and we praise you for your glorious being, and we thank you for your goodness and mercy displayed so abundantly to us. We thank you for uh, the goodness in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life of righteousness that we could not live, and then to make a sacrificial death to cover our abundance of sin, which we could, a debt we could not pay, that uh, you take our sins upon yourself and clothe us with your righteousness. What a beautiful exchange um, out of your love and mercy to us. And we thank you for your goodness to us and that uh, you've revealed yourself uh, through the scriptures, through your word. And we thank you that we uh, have uh, the privilege to come together this morning as a body of believers in Jesus Christ and to consider that word together, not just as a uh, mental exercise, but as a spiritual exercise. That way we come not just to fill our minds uh, with facts, but our hearts and our wills would be instructed by uh, your facts, uh, the facts of your uh, kingdom and in uh, the future coming of Christ to bring all things to their completion. Lord, we thank you for the further gift of your spirit, that we're not uh, left to our own devices as we study your word, but you have given us your comforter, your Holy Spirit, to guide us uh, in, in truth concerning all things. Uh, and we ask for your spirit to dwell in us richly this morning as we consider the words of the prophet Daniel together. Would you uh, instruct us would you, even as uh, the angels come to give Daniel understanding, we ask that for ourselves, that you would give us understanding um, of who you are and of your uh, uh, sovereign rule of your kingdom as you bring all things to their perfect completion. Guide us, we pray this morning, in Christ's name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so for the past several weeks, we've been in the second half of the book of Daniel, which largely consists of a series of Daniel's apocalyptic visions. Uh, last week, we were in chapter 9, uh, most of which focused on Daniel's praying, uh, which prompted God to send an angelic messenger to bring Daniel a vision concerning 70, 77s, or 70 weeks. The context for Daniel's prayer was his reading in the prophet of Jeremiah that the Lord's plan was to subject his people to Babylon for 70 years for their sin, but at the end of that time, God would act to judge the Babylonians and bring his people home. Having just witnessed the fall of Babylon, Daniel began to pray with great intensity for the fulfillment of the second half of that prophecy, the gracious restoration of God's people to the land uh, into Jerusalem. So Daniel's 
prayer um, demonstrated his concern to pray for God's people and the coming of God's kingdom. Um, and in that, Daniel, we, we often think of prophets as ones who speak God's words to us, but um, the prophet's role goes both ways. Uh, he pleads God's case to the people, but he also, prophets also plead the people's case back to God. And so Daniel uh, takes on that prophetic role, um, particularly we saw last week making confession of sin on behalf of the people uh, before their God, um, at, even as he invokes God's gracious identity. And we saw this particularly in chapter 9 um, with this contrast. The Lord is great and awesome. The Lord is righteous and forgiving. The Lord is faithful to all who love him and obey his commands. In contrast, Israel has sinned and done wrong, been wicked and rebelled, has turned away from your commands and laws. So with this confession of sin and invocation of God's great mercy uh, leads to the final um, part of the prayer where Daniel turns to supplication, um, specific supplication for Jerusalem and the people of God. But that supplication wasn't based on their worthiness, we saw, but on the character of God whose city and people they were. Um, we saw how Daniel asked God to act for God's namesake and for God's own glory. Um, from uh, the prayer uh, transitions into um, this angelic visitation and the vision that closes out chapter 9. While Daniel is yet praying, the angel isn't sent after the prayer we talked about last week, um, but while he's praying, God sent Gabriel to Daniel to give Daniel wisdom and insight into the matters about which he has been praying. While Daniel had been praying for Jerusalem at the end of Jeremiah's 70-year period, the angel gives him a vision concerning a period of 70 weeks, or literally 70 sevens. Perhaps Daniel was hoping that Jeremiah's 70 years would initiate the messianic kingdom when justice and righteousness would reign in Jerusalem. Um, uh, just as Jeremiah had also prophesied this new covenant of which Jeremiah spoke. But Gabriel's message um, concerns this further 70 weeks, that um, uh, this new covenant wouldn't arrive at the end of 70 years of exile, but would take 77, quote, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Um, so we didn't get to spend much time on the actual vision itself last week, so we're going to start there, um, beginning in chapter 9, verse 24, and I'll go ahead and read through um, chapter 10. So chapter 10 actually um, begins, it's kind of the prologue to Daniel's final vision, which runs over the final three chapters um, of the book. So chapters 10, 11, 12 are all part of one single visionary experience. And chapter 10 is the kind of prologue context of that final vision. So with that as a word of introduction, uh, uh, hear the word of God beginning in Daniel chapter 9, um, verse 24, and reading through the end of chapter 10. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word 
to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep, with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God. Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man greatly loved, Fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. 
But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he open it in our hearts and minds and wills this day. All right, so let's um, uh, begin by spending a little time. I don't want to spend too much time, but a little time since we didn't get to fully consider the vision of the 70 weeks uh, last week. Some time understanding this. So how do we understand the vision of 70 weeks? Um, and then Jesus uh, explicitly uses this passage in Matthew 24. Um, and let me flip there real quick and read that for us. Uh, So in Matthew 24, um, so this is in a section, um, the, Jesus has foretold the destruction of the temple. His uh, disciples come and ask him, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of the coming and the close of the age? Um, and then Jesus um, uh, gives this long answer. And in that answer he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field turn not back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So, um, yeah, so how do we understand the vision of the 70 weeks? And how does Jesus' use of this passage in Matthew 24 help us to understand the meaning of this vision? I mean, one thing we can do is we, the vision itself is broken down to us in three parts. So it's 70 weeks, but it's divided into three separate stages. So the first stage is um, no and therefore uh, verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build up Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So this first period is a period of, of, of seven uh, sevens. And then there's a second period for 62 weeks. It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And then after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing um, and and uh, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So we've got seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then one final week at the end. Um, so, yeah, how do we understand um, first, we can kind of think what we understand about the big stages. And then most of the, um, I said last week that uh, James Montgomery Boyce described, interpretations, not the text itself, but interpretations of the text as a swamp of interpretation. Most of that swamp is, is, is um, Christians trying to understand what that third stage means. But 
But let's work through these uh, briefly. Um, so, good question. So we have multiple, and Prince there, like a uh, leader, um, and um, anointed one uh, can be an anointed one, somebody who's been anointed like a king for a particular purpose, or it could be like some translations will render it Messiah, so the same word can be used um, for both of those. Um, and, and sometimes scripture uses anointed one, like Cyrus, who we read about in chapter 10, um, Isaiah actually calls him God's anointed, um, that he is the king that God anointed to bring the people back from the land of captivity and to let them come back in Jerusalem. But then Isaiah goes on to talk about another anointed one who's uh, you know, the suffering servant um, of chapter 53. So not just in Daniel, in these verses, but in scripture as a whole, like part of the difficulty sometimes is God uses anointed one to refer to the acts of a specific king, but he also uses anointed one in, um, in terms of the specific Messiah. So if you're asking me, I would say there are two different anointed ones, two different princes. And the first one refers to Cyrus, um, that anointed one who after a period of 70 years restores Israel um, back to um, um, back to uh, Jerusalem, and from the destruction of the temple to sending people back is about 49 years. So it seems to make sense that stage one, that first seven weeks, refers to God's anointed one as Cyrus, this king of the Medes and Persians, um, who God uses for the redemptive purpose of restoring his people to Israel. Um, but that's Again, there's lots of, um, uh, yeah, oh, lots of people um, struggle with these things. And part of the struggle, again, is because Scripture uses these terms in, to refer to, to different kinds of people. Yeah, so, and that's how Christians 
um, for the most part, have interpreted that second stage. That second stage refers to the period from the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. Um, and it's, it's, a, you know, it's not going to be uh, easy. It's going to be a troubled time, um, even as we saw back in um, chapter 8 um, with the, the, this prophecy about um, Antiochus Epiphanes who um, you know, commits this abominable act in the temple, um, but uh, a period of 62 weeks. And at the end of it, um, you know, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And so, you know, our second anointed one in this passage. And so is, is that anointed one the Messiah? And the Messiah, um, you know, that language of cutting off, again, is scriptural language. To cut off um, means to suffer a violent penal death, uh, Leviticus 7.20. Um, Isaiah prophesied the suffering servant would, quote, be cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. So I would say it's almost instinctive um, to New Testament Christians to see in these statements a prophecy about the work of Christ um, uh, who, who comes um, and, and is, is, but is cut off in the midst of life, purposely cut off. Um, we'll see. Um, all right, so we happy with that? <laughs> or do we have understanding on that? All right, so, so what is our sev final seven then? So if the first one refers to this period from um, the destruction of the temple to its Cyrus sending the people back, the next one from the rebuilding of the temple to the birth um, and work of the Messiah, what do we do with this final week and half a week? Yeah, and, ha and if we take that, that, you know, that timeline, what happens halfway through those 66 years? Jesus is crucified. Like, so that half week um, in there is sort of like Jesus comes. And with his death, um, the, the need for a temple ends at that moment. The, the moment Jesus makes sacrificial death on the cross, the temple is, is, is irrelevant. Like, as Victor said last week, it, it was there to point people to Christ and Christ's sacrificial work. And once Christ comes and makes the perfect atonement, the temple is, is, um, is extra baggage that is then subsequently destroyed, as you say, um, under uh, the, the Vespasian destruction in AD 70. Um, and so... You know, it's giving us this, this timeline of events and this redemptive historical, you know, perspective that, um, and, and that's what we talked a lot about last week is kind of the big picture is, is what is covered in verse 24. What's the purpose of this 70-week period? 
This period is decreed to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Like that replaces the holy of holies in the temple, that there is something that's more holy than that place in the temple, and that's the presence of Jesus Christ. Um, good. Anything else we want to say on the 70 weeks? Because um, I don't want to forestall too much of our chapter 10. I, I, I just don't know how long chapter 11 is going to take us. It's a long chapter, and uh, as, as Matthew keeps telling I don't know what you're going to do with chapter 11. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, and comforting in the sense that, um, as we'll see, as you know, the events of chapter ten unfold. Like, you know, in chapter nine, Daniel's praying, you know, before the exiles start returning. Like, so it, you know, it's a hoped for event, something he's longing for, and we'll see. And in, in like, so chapter ten starts three years down the road, um, and and things aren't. People have gone back, but there's no temple yet. You know, um, the people are facing opposition in the land. Um, it's not clear exactly, you know, which side the Persians. You know, the Persians are the overlords of all these smaller entities. It's not clear um, which side the Persians are going to support back in in Jerusalem over the struggle of rebuilding the city and the temple. Um, so, so in between that, Daniel's being given this, like, you know, he's being given this prophecy, like, look, the end of the 70 years isn't the end of trouble. The end of the 70 years isn't the end of the fundamental problem which you've just prayed about, which is Israel's sinfulness. But that sinfulness will be dealt with, and that there will be a time when definitively the sins of the people will be atoned for, and sin will be done away with, and, and the people will be clothed in righteousness, just like Jeremiah had prophesied, um, as well as how he had prophesied about those 70 years. Um, so absolutely, it's, it's really intended to comfort Daniel that um, in the coming days he might be discouraged as the return from exile doesn't go, you know, um, it isn't inaugurating a messianic kingdom. And it's as if the angel is preparing him for that by letting him know that that time is set by God and it's set to a precise timeline. But the return from exile isn't the coming of the Messiah. It's not the, the, the um, it's restoration of the people physically to the land, but it's not the spiritual restoration that they need. Um, they're, they're going to continue to be troubled um, and continue to experience troubles. Um, all right, well, let's start into chapter 10 then. Um, so 
uh, let's start. So again, chapter 10 starts a vision, and in this vision, if you just kind of flip, um, you know, this is, uh, vision goes all the way through the end of chapter 12, and I apologize, I have no idea who's trying to call me on a Sunday morning. And it reminds me, I'm supposed to turn my ringer off. Okay, no disturbances for three hours. I meant to do that 30 minutes ago. Um, uh, so um, chapter 10 is setting the context. We don't start getting into the vision until chapter 11, um, or the, the um, I mean, chapter 10 is visionary, um, but we don't get like the, the prophetic aspect of the vision until chapter 11. Um, we get this, this glorious appearance. But before we get to that, so what are the circumstances as we start in chapter 10? What are the circumstances in which Daniel received this final vision? What were we told about? Okay, so the vision, again, is coming in response to uh, Daniel entering into this period of fasting, mourning, praying. Um, just like we saw in chapter 9, um, Daniel's reading the scriptures. Daniel's reading the scriptures drives him to prayer, which we talked about last week is a good model for us. We sh you know, as we read the scriptures, we should be driven to our knees to, to pray to God, uh, that God's will be done, that God's glory come. And so here, um, Daniel is entering into not just, um, a, a, you know, um, you know, like we had a, a fast um, period a couple of weeks ago um, before our prayer meeting, which was a day. <laughs> um, and let's just say my stomach was, was rumbly um, at the end of that day. For him, uh, for three weeks, and it's not that he's completely going without food, for three weeks he's eating no delicacies, no meat, no wine, um, he is not anointing himself. He's adopting the posture of, of mourning. Um, and he's doing it for a prolonged period of time. So the vision is going to come in response um, to Daniel's act of praying and mourning. Good. What else um, sets the circumstances? What's he praying and mourning for? Do we know? Any hints? What details does Daniel give us in these first three or four verses? Yeah, the sovereign God has ordained means, like, you know, um, and he ordains the means of, of prayer and of, of repentance and supplication. And so he uses our prayers to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And we see that 
We saw that in chapter 9 in terms of Daniel, you know, praying, and, and he realizes, look, 70 years is up, and we haven't repented. We need to repent and confess our sins to the Lord so the Lord will do what the Lord has promised. Um, and so here, um, he again is, is prompted to, to, to pray and to mourn um, and to, to seek after God. Um, and, the, and in the response, it, 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 you know, the response of this um, visionary figure is that, um, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So again, like, um, God is responding to Daniel's act of praying. Yeah, we're, we're given this kind of behind the scenes. Like, I, I'm a historian. Like, I, you know, this week I was sending students to archives to look at actual documents to, to write the history of, um, they were writing the history of pirates in Boston. So go out, find stuff in 18th century newspapers about pirates in Boston. Um, and, you know, and that's the facts on which they build history. But what Daniel communicates and, and what Dave is, is pointing us to is that there is um, there's action that um, is going on that we're normally not cognizant of. Um, that there's this heavenly warfare that is taking place, um, cosmic warfare that involves human actors, um, but the fundamental um, battlefield isn't this world, but it's spiritual war. Um, and we get glimpses of this, like, you know, um, throughout the scriptures, reminding us that, you know, we might think, you know, our foes are, you know, this particular um, political entity, or this particular government, or this particular set of people. No, um, uh, Paul tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I, as we um, look at, at chapter 10 um, and going forward in the vision itself, where Daniel is, and, and as Dave says, it's kind of unique to Daniel, um, or not completely unique to Daniel, but it happens in Daniel more so than other places. We're, we're given um, a picture of this kind of cosmic um, battleground um, that's taken place with, um, you know, princes who are not of this earth. Other things that prompt his, his vision? Um, I mean, look at some of the details he's given. Where is Daniel and when is Daniel at this moment? 
He's on the bank of the river. Which river? Tigris. Where's the Tigris River? Iraq. <laughs> so he's not, I mean, he, you know, here we are, third year of Cyrus. The decree to, for the Jews to return, to allow the Jews to return, happened in year one of Cyrus. So here we are, three years in, and where's Daniel? He's not in Jerusalem. He's still where he's always been, in, in Babylon. Um, he's still, you know, in exile, um, uh, as he's been throughout this book. So Daniel is still in exile, even as people are returning to the land. Um, so where he is, I think, is important. Like, and he's praying for the, the, again, this kingdom perspective. He's praying for the people of God, um, even while, uh, who are in Jerusalem, even while he himself is still um, in exile. Um, he, he's not there. Um, the other thing that's important about the third year of Cyrus is it doesn't take long as the Jew, after the Jews go back, as um, we read um, in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, that they, they encounter opposition almost immediately, um, that the rebuilding of the temple isn't an easy thing. The rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls don't happen, but the, you know, the walls get rebuilt by you know, guys having a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Like that it's um, the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem isn't going smoothly, especially by about the third year, opposition has arisen. Um, some people think that Cyrus is kind of off doing big emperor things at this time and has left Cambyses as his vice regent. And Cambyses has a very different attitude toward the Jews and, and toward um, other religions than, than Cyrus. So in a period in which um, there, there's a lot of discouragement, probably, for the people of God, after the initial joy, we're going back to now discouragement. Like, think every time a wave of exiles comes back and they get to Jerusalem, what's the first thing they do? They weep. <laughs> they look at the condition of the city and they go, Oh, it's worse than I expected. Um, so, you know, in these early years of rebuilding of Jerusalem, there's opposition, there's discouragement. Um, there is fear about, are the Persians going to, you know, be consistent with their policy as people are writing back to the Persian government saying, oh, the Jews, they're, they're preparing to rebel. Um, you know, they've come back not to be obedient servants to you, but they've come back for the purposes of rebuilding their city and temple and rebelling against you. And so from the Persian perspective, like they're getting different stories coming back from Palestine about what the Jews are doing. Um, so there's a lot of potential for discouragement amongst the people. And I think it's that is which is prompting um, Daniel here to enter into this prolonged period of, of mourning and fasting and praying for the people. Um, okay, so, so he, he prays, um, he's, he's fasting. Um, uh, on the 24th day of the first month, again, 
this is Passover, so it's giving us a timeline. So in the midst of Passover, instead of celebrating the feast, Daniel is fasting. Um, and so in the midst of this, um, he receives, um, you know, in the midst of this, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man. Um, so who is this man that shows up before for Daniel? And maybe as we try to figure it out, how is he described? How does Daniel react to him? Um, what are some of the things that are, are given, uh, details given us to help us identify who this might be? And what are we told about the man? Why? So it's a, as you say, in contrast to, and as Dave said, like, you know, we're given names of these other angels, but we're not given detailed descriptions of them. This figure we're given a detailed description of, and he has all this um, kind of glorious apparel um, that is often, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So glorious apparel, so we've got one, is this an appearance of Christ? Daniel? Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, let, let's just take the lightning. Um, lightning is a frequent accompaniment of the coming of the Lord in Scripture. Um, and Revelation are, are multiple uh, cases. Um, uh, Ezekiel, um, the same thing. Uh, at Sinai, um, you know, lightning is all over the place. So, you know, having, um, you know, uh, having the appearance like lightning is is often um, scriptural language trying to capture what the appearance of a manifestation of God is like. Um, so, so lightning, um, having uh, eyes um, like flaming torches. Again, that that you know that God sees in in ways that um, other creatures don't. Yeah, Brian. Good. So again, as we think about it, there are kind of two ways people fall. So either it's it's a, a Christophany, you know, appearance of Christ, or it's another kind of person who comes with the qualities of a, a, a theophonic appearance. Like, so he's they're coming, but they're they're coming as so closely associated with God's appearance that you know it that coming. Uh, comes with the manifestation of that appearance. And again, like, so, like, the, 
needing Michael's help is, is one argument against Christophany. But he's also referring to him three times as my Lord, which again seems to be more kind of reverential language than Daniel's given to, um, to other angels. Um, and he even says, you know, calls himself, um, how can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? Um, so again, it, it, it seems to be a little bit more than just a normal angelic appearance, whether it's an appearance of Christ. Again, people um, yeah, wrestle with this and their arguments for and against. But it definitely seems to be an appearance more than just uh, a, a Gabriel or a Michael or another angel. This presence carries more of that active, living presence of God. Because again, notice how Daniel reacts to his uh, appearance. Like, um, you know, uh, um, first of all, like I love the idea, the people with Daniel don't see it and they run off. <laughs> Um, it's a lot like Paul, uh, when Paul encounters Christ, like they don't, they don't see, um, Jesus appear to Saul, but they're frightened. Um, um, and here, like, um, Daniel's clear, they don't see what Daniel's seeing and they're so scared they run off. And Daniel himself, who does see, um, I saw this great vision, no strength was left in me. My radiance appearance was fearfully changed. I retained no strength. So this is presence drives Daniel, not literally to his knees, drives him face flat on the ground. <laughs> like he has no strength left in him, which again is as we think of other places where God appears, like the first reaction of someone who enters into the presence of God is to be undone. Um, uh, to, 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 you know, to lose all strength. Um, and here, to, to, you know, Daniel's like, I can't talk <laughs> um, until the angel comes and kind of like opens his mouth. Yeah, and as you say, I don't think the loss of strength is the result of fasting because the strength is restored, you know, later on. You know, the words come and strength is restored. So the strength is departing because of the presence of this appearance before him. That's what's driven out his, his strength. That's what um, um, takes away his, his vigor, takes away his speech. And it's only as... Um, the, the man starts to speak to him that his speech is restored 
It's only through the speech of this, this presence to him that his strength returns. Um, so, which again is um, a typical biblical picture of um, when human beings come into the near presence of God, their strength departs. Like they're undone by being in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. How can a person stand? How can a person speak in the presence of God? Um, they can't until God gives them the strength gives them the words. You know, like think of that picture in Isaiah, like a coal is brought from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips and now he he can can speak. Like took I did away with the thing that's sending you to your knees. Um, so it's it's the um, it's God's action toward man that allows man now to be strengthened and to um, and to have words. Um, um, so, you know, in this encounter, Daniel's initially driven to his face. And I love, like, like the progression. Like, he's on, fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So he's completely prostrate. And then a hand touched me. So now he gets up to his hands and knees. <laughs> um, and then, you know, uh, he's spoken to. And after he's spoken, I stood up trembling. Um, uh, and then, you know, um, uh, you know, he's mute, and behold, one like the likeness of children of man touched my lips, and then I opened my mouth and spoke. So we have this great, like, physical um, uh, or change in, in Daniel's physical demeanor as this encounter goes on, and it's always in response to um, either the man or another angel coming to, to do something for Daniel that changes his posture, that takes him from prostrate on his ground to on his hands and knees, to standing up trembling, from being mute to speaking, to finally at the end of this, you know, this final word, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. Like, um, and, and that's the pattern throughout 10. Like, Daniel is undone by this presence and slowly, you know, he goes from prostate to hands and knees to standing, trembling, from mute to speaking, and finally having his strength restored. Um, and all of it is coming in response to the actions and speech um, of of. of um, of heaven to him. Um, so it's a great picture, I think, of, of this, you know, uh, and should be a great encouragement to us um, of how God uh, responds to our needs and equips us and strengthens us for the work that God has set before us to do. Um, you know, and as we see this, like, um, you know, this presence of um, whether, again, whether it's Christ or some near manifestation of um, a figure from God's presence that carries God's, um, um, God's presence um, before Daniel. Um, it, the point is, he, he's undone by it initially, but um, through the encouraging words and the encouraging acts of God toward him, 
he is able to then stand and speak in the presence of God. Um, and, and that's, you know, again, part of that redemptive story of all scriptures, that it's God's actions toward us that let us abide in God's presence and not be completely undone by standing in that presence. Um, okay. Uh, might have to do a little more 10 next week. Um, but that's okay. I've got a week to play with. <laughs> I have three weeks to get in two and a piece of a chapter. So, um, Anything else we want to say today on 10? And, and maybe next time um, we'll focus on... Um, so chapter 10, to go back to something Dave uh, said, um, gives us biblical insights into the nature of reality. It emphasizes that human cause and effect are not the only forces or influences operative in the history of the world. It shows that the conflicts we experience here on earth are the counterpart of a great spiritual conflict that is presently ongoing in the heavenly realm. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about um, some of that as we get into chapter 11, because that's going to be more the focus of chapter 11 anyway. Um, all right, any other final thoughts on chapter 10 before closes in prayer? Um, again, just like chapter 9, chapter 10, strong encouragement to pray. Um, and again, uh, as um, Dave said, the way the sovereign God ordains to use our prayers um, that um, they are means that he has appointed for us to use to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And while our first response so often is to, to you know, deal with human cause and effect, what, what Janel's chapter 9 and 10 are emphasizing is the importance for the people of God to be a people of prayer, entering into God's presence um, and, and turning to him for strength and guidance. Um, all right, well, let's close. Gracious God, we do thank you for uh, your grace and goodness to us. That um, you took um, us, uh, rebellious sinners, and not just um, made us acceptable um, in your sight, but have made us uh, sons and daughters alongside your son, Jesus Christ, that you've adopted us into your kingdom so that um, we can enter your presence, um, not just flat on our faces or trembling, but uh, we can enter, as the apostle tells us, boldly before your throne of grace. Um, and we thank you that um, we have a foretaste of that um, eternal presence of um, of heaven, a foretaste of heaven standing and worshiping uh, before you forever and ever, um, even in this coming hour, as we uh, seek uh, your glory and to experience that glory as we um, hear your word proclaimed, as we sing your praises, and as we open our hearts uh, before you in prayer. Make our worship uh, pleasing and acceptable in your sight, uh, we pray, uh, and give us strength um, to be bold for your kingdom. And we ask this in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.